0: Hello, I'm Michael Watson, joined by Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In the wake of the Hamas attacks on Israel on October the 7th and Israel's military response, America's higher education institutions have been riven by radical pro-Palestinian demonstrations and a donor revolt against administrations that seemed to be indifferent to anti-Semitism. To give some background on the strife in higher education and how we got to the point where Ivy League presidents could not explicitly condemn calls for genocide before Congress, the Manhattan Institute's Heather MacDonald joins us. Uh, Heather, could you tell us a little bit about your background and work for the Manhattan Institute before we begin?
1: Well, thank you for having me on, Michael. I greatly appreciate it. Um, my background is I'm an a academic monkey. I, I thought of nothing greater than being able to be a professor when I was both in college and I, I started a PhD in comparative literature until I realized that my field, with my own uh, sort of involvement and agreement when I was an undergraduate, had become completely mired in a fictional narrative about language that was a, a literary theory that began in the 90s known as deconstruction or post-structuralism or postmodernism, And that morphed into identity politics of the gender studies and race studies and ethnic studies that came after my time in the university, but was even worse. Uh, nevertheless, I have always retained a profound love in the abstract for the university and a profound sorrow and rage at what university life has become. Uh, I, I am utterly uh, dumbfounded and appalled by professors whose greatest privilege should be to curate the the beauty and sublimity of Western civilization who have turned on their own inheritance and are teaching students to hate it based on a groundless uh, accusations of systemic racism and sexism. So, so my heart remains within the university. As far as what I've done for the Manhattan Institute, which is a think tank in New York City, I kind of reinvented myself and in the 90s got very involved in writing on the urban revolution that uh, then-Mayor Rudolph Giuliani was prosecuting with such verve and insight and brilliance and courage and energy. That transformed the city. From- and, and
0: literal prosecution.
1: Right. Well, yes. I mean, he wasn't prosecuting back then, but he was certainly defending a lot of lawsuits as mayor from the homeless and welfare industrial complexes. Um, so I, I got very involved in issues of social policy, like welfare reform and ultimately policing, which is probably how I became most known by defending the cops against the specious charge that they are uh, racist when they go after black criminals
0: so how did we get here the university of pennsylvania's president has just resigned the there is an ongoing campaign now against the harvard president and there is at least some noise of criticism towards the MIT president for the comments that they made at the congressional hearing on anti-Semitism in higher education. How did we get to this point?
1: Well, that is a very, very big question, but the uh, movement towards what a philosopher, a French philosopher, Paul Ricoeur called the hermeneutics of suspicion, which means a, a critic, a, a professor, somebody who is engaging with humanistic material, with literature, with philosophy, They, the predominant attitude in universities today is one of suspicion. It is one of, we are going to deconstruct the subtext. That's a phrase that your listeners, Mike, may recall from the 1990s when the idea of searching for allegedly, you know, uh, uh, secretive and and negative subtexts in in literature became a commonplace expression, um, and and so the universities, at least since the nineteen sixties, but one could arguably say that they adopted the role of aggressive critique much before that. Um, started indulging in the idea that their primary mission was to be an oppositional force against mainstream America. A a very, very powerful prod towards the, by now, virtually universal left-wing ideology that prevails on campuses came in the 1960s with the start of very large racial preferences to admit black students into university environments. The colleges did that by admitting black students who were not competitively qualified for the schools to which they were being admitted. So they were admitting blacks, let's say with combined SATs of 950 on a 1600 point scale into universities where the student average was maybe a 1300 on that 1,600-point uh, combined scale. I, I've,
0: I've heard this called mismatch theory.
1: Mismatch theory is absolutely what it is. It is that mismatch theory was was first uh, expanded upon most, most clearly, most profoundly, and empirically by a progressive law professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA Law School, Richard Sander, who's written a whole book with the journalist Stuart Taylor called Mismatch, that lays out the incontrovertible data that if you admit a student, it could be on gender grounds, not just race, into an academic environment for which he is not competitively qualified, he will fall behind. So in the 60s, colleges started admitting these black students. They performed woefully uh, and rather admitting their error in lowering standards to admit black students, colleges began trying to devise programs that would allow them to graduate. So they devised the black studies programs. They, they started creating the entire diversity bureaucracy dedicated to the proposition that if black students on campus feel out of place, if they're struggling academically, the reason is not that their qualifications put them at a competitive disadvantage, The reason they are struggling is because they are in a racist environment. The DEI, the diversity, equity, inclusion bureaucracy, is devoted to the proposition that colleges like the rest of American society are systemically racist. Now, this proposition, especially in an academic context, Mike, is false on its face because the only reason that the black students have been admitted to schools without sufficient competitive qualifications is because the universities are desperate to have them there they are not racist institutions the same goes for faculty hiring they every faculty hiring search talk to any professor who's remotely honest on a campus today and he will tell you that the name of the game in every faculty hiring search whether it's in stem whether it's in philosophy whether it's in economics, whether it's in finance, whether it's in computer science, the name of the game is Find Me a Warm, Black, Hispanic, or Female Body to Hire. And I don't care what the qualifications are. So these are not what is traditionally called racist or sexist institutions. Anyway. So how did
0: so how do we get from there yeah. where there's this overwhelming desire to find I will use their euphemism, underrepresented populations to tolerance of anti-Semitism, effective tolerance of anti-Semitism?
1: The idea became that the very definition of the West is one of white supremacy and exclusion. Any inequality is only allowed to be explained today by racism or sexism. Uh, You're not allowed to look at academic skills gaps. You're not allowed to look at behavior gaps like crime in the case of the criminal justice system. And so the idea that the West is the source of world inequities, the source of injustice on the globe today became the dominant ideology. And that became embraced by not just black studies, but ethnic studies, post-colonial studies, the search was on to find every instantiation of the evils of the West. And the irony is that traditional anti-Semitism uh, proposed that Jews were antithetical to Western civilization. It saw them as outsiders. Today, Jews are reviled by the campus left because they're seen as the very embodiment of Western civilization. They are successful, they are rational, they are competitive, they are scientifically inclined. And so the hatred for the West focuses with particular uh, laser-like intensity on Israel as the embodiment of the Western settler-colonialist entity.
0: Uh, Sarah I'll let you come in on the next question but just as a for our listeners uh, what is what is the idea of settler colonialism and why do I suspect that Israel is not the only country that is considered settler colonialist by people who believe in it?
1: Well settler colonialism is just an idea that any white allegedly white civilization is inauthentic that it must have come in and uh, eradicated some original, Environment loving, harmonious, matriarchal, never genocidal, never warlike, uh, person of color, uh, you know, anti global warming people, uh, tribal peoples, and um, and so the idea is that the West has gone around wiping off these tribal peoples, these peace loving, ec- you know, ecologically sensitive uh, tribal peoples off the face of the earth and supplanting it with a horrible, dominant civilization. So obviously America is seen as settler colonialism that we come in and we colonize a a continent which itself was colonized by the uh, aborigine Indians that we displaced, and we did displace them with, with brutality. There is no question about that but they displaced displaced each other with brutality. I mean, the Iroquois were notorious for their absolute, cruel, beyond all fathoming uh, war tactics. And that goes for the African tribes that were willing participants in the slave trade. Um, So the fact of the matter is, is that there's not a civilization when given the technological capacity to do so, has not tried to wipe out its neighbors there may be a few uh, few tribes here and there scattered across history that, upon first impression, look like they are, in fact, peace-loving. I would doubt it. I, would, I think that the human instinct is one of conquest and predation, and that instinct is one that has been most reliably reined in. By the fundamental principles of Western civilization, which is limited constitutional government, human rights, which is a uniquely Western concept. Uh, And so the West has absolutely nothing to apologize for. Nothing that the West has done has not been done in worse and in spades by every other civilization.
2: Sarah? Um, Hi, Heather. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm thrilled that you're with us today. Um, So I'm really happy, just want to say this uh, first, because I don't think many people are really considering um, what you just said about how uh, Israel is kind of a stand-in right now, and this sort of ancient holy war is sort of a stand-in for a, a sort of war on the West, which I think is an incredibly important part of this discussion, so I'm really happy to hear you raise that. I've, I've seen others talk about it, too, but uh, I think the more we talk about it, the better. Um, but the two questions that I have, two-parter, I guess— um, First, uh, I saw someone on Twitter make the argument in relation to what's going on on campuses, the anti-Semitism on campuses specifically, um, that, that we shouldn't be sort of punishing the universities at all. Uh, we shouldn't be punishing them through, um, you know, the, the calls for resignations and things like that, because this is just a matter of free speech and, uh, these, um, Uh, Jewish students are just able to hear the gross, disgusting, um, you know, haters that hate them. And that's actually a good thing for them to know. Um, And that the founders would laugh at this kind of safetyism. Um, What do you make of that, first of all? And then secondly, um, what do you make of uh, much has been written um, recently about how these elite universities specifically, but, you know, other universities as well, are more like federal contractors than they are actual institutes of higher learning today. Um, and that that may be the, uh, the bullseye, that may be the target we should be aiming at when we're trying to fix these problems. So that's my two-parter. Um, let me know if you want me to go back and start again.
1: <laughs> well, no, I completely agree with the people whom you're, you're paraphrasing, Sarah. I think that the alumni donors who I'm cheering on otherwise are making a big mistake uh, in, in adopting the same double standards that the universities have made. I mean, it was just uh, hilarious to hear the campus presidents of MIT, Cornell, and, and uh, University of Pennsylvania in their testimony profess uh, that their universities were such open uh, fora for, for free expression and therefore they couldn't crack down on the anti-Semitism. Well,
0: just, just, as a, just as a statistic to illustrate just how ridiculous that claim was, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression ranks universities by how free speech they are. Uh, Harvard was 248 out of 248, Penn
1: 247. Yeah, I mean, you don't even need the FIRE rankings. You can go to practically any university and find that there's a huge chilling of expression of anything that smacks of vague conservatism or, you know, that violates the campus orthodoxies about the ubiquity of, of white racism and white supremacy and, and misogyny and, you know, transphobia and whatnot. You're simply a not allowed to, to voice certain opinions, uh, even if you're a tenured professor like Amy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, if you give the data on the pernicious effects of the mismatch theory that we were talking earlier about, Michael, uh, you'll find yourself under investigation and, and possibly f- facing the, the stripping of tenure. So uh, it's just a, a preposterous idea that schools are bastions of open expression. That having been said, uh, the alumni donors and, 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 and the uh, congressional GOP members and, and even some Democratic establishment members that are suggesting that the solution to what we've been seeing is to ban what's be called anti-Semitic speech are completely wrong. It is, it is a good thing that we're hearing this. You want to know what people are thinking. If we banned it, they would still be thinking, they would still be getting the same anti-colonialist ideology in their classroom. Uh, maybe they would be inhibited about chanting intifada out in the in the campus quad but i want to know that that's what their beliefs are because we have to trace this and challenge uh and and demand an alternative to the anti-western uh ideology that reigns in the curriculum so they're absolutely right the first amendment the the founders i would hope would be appalled by the claims of safetyism i mean you have now jewish students playing the same preposterous safety card as the campus left does saying they're unsafe on college campuses that is in very most instances hyperbolic i'm sorry i understand people's feelings so what, but so is- what
0: should what should if if bans restrictions etc are are out of the question what should people who want to see the Anti semitic chant everything from the anti semitic chanting to the institutional uh, radical leftism pushed back against. What what should what should they do? What should they ask for? How should they go about it?
1: First of all, they should read the curriculum and get the course syllabi at their university and see what's being taught. Have the trustees say, "Is this? Do you think that there is?" Uh, a a monoculture here, are there, is it possible for students to learn the good things about the West? Is it possible for students to lose themselves in the beauty of literature and music and art? Or are they constantly being told to see the world with a chip on their shoulder if they're lucky enough to be in one of the campus victim groups? Or are they allies that are told that you know they, they must constantly atone for the sin of being white? Um so uh, uh, you know I I I would not at all advocate anything related to crank, crapping, cranking down on speech What about want- what about
2: the the calls for resignations cuz I kind of I I I definitely understand things that speech is protected um but things that gets that spiral toward violence and I think that was one of in tablet magazine for example Uh, some of the, um, there was a great article where they were talking about how McGill and others had kind of just ignored some of these things and they were ramping up and ramping up. Isn't it the administrator's jobs to, to protect speech, but also protect the students?
1: Well, protect them from what? Protect them from crime, yes. I mean, we have this effort by the same intersectional left that is out there you know chanting river to the sea that to try and always defund and dismantle campus police forces um, so yes that they have a protected role to protect the physical safety of students um, but as far as i mean i i just reject the whole language of safety i think it's ridiculous i think it's as ridiculous for uh so-called friends of academic freedom to say well, the role of the university students should feel intellectually unsafe on campus. I think that's BS, too. I, I, you know, to, that presumes that campuses are largely about current events, because the main things that going to make college, camp, uh, these fragile, self-involved, narcissistic college students claim to feel unsafe are things imminently of the moment, you know, whether it's a Trump supporter or somebody who says that biology is binary and inherent in our chromosomes, which by the way, it is. Um, but if you're doing the, the mission of, if you're doing what you should be doing at college, which is learning languages, learning the periodic table, learning, you know, the basic physical forces, learning what the, why, why John Milton's Paradise Lost is central to the tradition of English literature and indeed of Western literature itself, those are not things that should make you feel unsafe. So I, I, I kind of reject the entire notion, but if we have to live with students claiming to be unsafe, um, I would just say it's the role of the adults to tell them, for God's sakes, get a grip. You're the most privileged (laughs) human being in human history.
2: So what do you make of then the, um, the calls for resignations and, uh, the the notion that, as I've seen it reported, that these these institutes are actually federal contractors. They take so much taxpayer money in research grants and things like that. Uh, they have huge endowments, um, and they're not really they're not really higher learning facilities anymore. They're just head, what does somebody call them hedge funds. With, you know, I can't remember the exact expression. Yeah, yeah. Hedge,
0: fund, hedge funds with a sideline in, side exactly. in
2: education, a residual sideline in education. Exactly. So what do you make of that, Heather?
1: Well, it's true. I mean, it's it's kind of nauseating. They all pretend to be so anti-capitalist and above the dirty money-grubbing, you know, way of making money. Um, but they, they're desperate for every last alumni donor. Dollar that they can get their hands on, they feel entitled to it. They're expansionists, you know. They keep they keep creating new buildings. They get you know built, They're huge landowners. Columbia University in New York City is the largest landowner in the city. NYU is also not far behind, uh, and so they are huge, uh, really capitalist monoliths. Now, a lot of that funding is going towards science and medicine. Unfortunately, the federal government is is subjecting that funding stream to the same diversity mandates as we see every place else. And so the federal National Institutes of Health, Natural, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy have all made diversity the main criterion for doling out federal research grants. The universities themselves uh, are, are destroying meritocracy in science, hiring and and teaching and and research in favor of diversity well you can have diversity or you can have meritocracy you cannot have both given the academic skills gap between so-called underrepresented minorities on the one hand and whites and asians on the other so uh this this big science research complex is being compromised as we speak Nevertheless, you know, traditionally, it has been a very important engine of progress for all of humanity with its scientific discoveries. So I would keep that going, perhaps, although I know there's people who critique it even on a non-diversity ground. Uh, I, but I would certainly get rid of any diversity element to it and, um, you know, perhaps demand greater uh, accountability and where the where the federal taxpayer dollars are going.
2: I think that's what the writer at Tablet Magazine. I think he uh, basically was like, you know, Congress needs to go line by line through some of right. these. Yeah, some open the books basically. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Heather, before we let you go, is there anything else that uh, you or your colleagues are working on that you'd like to promote?
1: Well, I'd like to promote my book. <laughs> <When> raised- <laughs> go ahead. Mm-hmm. When race Trump's merit, which came out this year, and it, it discusses a lot of the background to what we've been talking about today, and if you want to understand the ways in which every institution in America today is under threat from the race mongering uh, hustlers and the the idea that disparate impact. Can I,
0: ask, can I ask you? Can I ask you one brief question then? Yeah. So. What effect do you think, so this obviously back in June, the Supreme Court placed some pretty significant restrictions on the use of racial and ethnic preferences. Do you think that that's going to have a solitary effect?
1: Uh, it's not going to have as much as the optimists believe because the schools are going to be able to use the holistic admissions loophole that was provided them by Chief Justice John Roberts to continue uh, admitting students on the basis of race, not merit. And, you know, I I read the daily um, updates from the Chronicle of Higher Education with just amazement, uh, because the schools are still bulking up on diversity, equity, inclusion bureaucrats, and they will continue to do so even if they rename them something else. But it's going to be very, very hard to eradicate uh, this entire victimology complex. it's worth doing. And I'm, you know, I'm writing about the alumni donors as we speak. Uh, And, and, but there's been many failed efforts in the past to turn this thing around. The anti-Semitism charge, while I think it's exaggerated and, and misses the larger problem, it's a useful organizing tool. It's awoken a lot of very wealthy Jewish donors who've been on autopilot and giving. So, you know, this, this is a, a, A a moment unlike any other that we've seen in the past. I just hope we can keep it going and and broaden it out beyond anti-Semitism.
0: All right. Well, thanks again to the Manhattan Institute's Heather McDonald for joining us. We will include include a link to her op-ed in the Wall Street Journal titled DEI Drives Campus Anti-Semitism in today's show notes. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.